Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My guest today is Dr. David Chikveitsa, Chef de Cabinet to the Director General of the United Nations, Geneva. Among other things, we talk about Afghanistan, international affairs, past and present, and some of the big personalities that he has worked with during his long and varied diplomatic career. Please note that this interview was recorded on the 27th of July. Living in the Geneva region for the past 28 years, I've had the occasion to visit the United Nations and many of its related so-called international organizations many times. I've even had as my guests on this show three UN Geneva Directors General, including the present incumbent. Yet, I'm nothing more nor less than an outsider, but with a personal interest in learning, learning about institutions, organizations, governments, states, and the men and women who run them and learning from people who have seen up close, sometimes up very close, the leaders, the personalities, and the pressures on them. I take great pleasure in benefiting from the relatively easy and relaxed access to fascinating people that Geneva affords. One such fascinating person is my guest today. He's David Chikvedza, Dr. David Chikvedza. Many of you listening will probably not be familiar with his name, but some of you certainly will. He's the chef de cabinet of the Director General of the United Nations Office in Geneva. He's been in that pivotal post twice currently since 2013 and is now supporting the work of his fifth Director General. However, and it's a big however, his career in the Foreign Service Government and the International Civil Service goes back over 36 years to 1984. And in all his incarnations, he's been and continues to be a keen observer of the international scene. Dear listeners, there is simply not enough time to read out his full career now, but here are a few snapshots and conspicuous names with whom he's been associated, and you can always Google him. He's an ethnic Georgian and a citizen of the Republic of Georgia. That's that ancient and geographically strategic Eurasian state in the Caucasus with a unique alphabet in which restored its independence in 1991 at the end of the Soviet Union. By the way, His father was once the foreign minister of that country, so he comes from a family steeped in politics and diplomacy. Among other things, and the list is quite long, he once directed the UN Library and the UN Geneva Cultural Diplomacy Program. He was a senior advisor to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the late and still greatly missed Sergio Vieira de Melo, was a staff member at the UN in New York, where he worked on important projects such as North Korea, Central Asia, and the former Yugoslavia. He supported the former U.S. Secretary of State James Baker on his confidential missions to Algeria, Morocco, Mauritania, on behalf of the U.N. Secretary General concerning the Western Sahara issue. Remember that? That was a few years ago. He personally visited the stricken city of Chernobyl three times, three times, to help victims of terrible contamination in both Belarus and Ukraine. And before the United Nations, he worked for Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev and Russian President Boris Yeltsin. He was once Special Assistant and Chief of Protocol at the Soviet Embassy in Washington, D.C. at the time of the legendary Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And most of, much of the latter happened before and then around the disintegration of the USSR. Listeners, for students of international relations or just the plain curious about vital and relatively recent history, I have sitting in front of me the nearest thing you're going to find to a library of invaluable information in a dark suit. 
It's precisely for this reason, rather than exclusively his current UN position, important as that may be, that I wanted to interview him. David Tikvadze, welcome to the McKay interview, and thanks for inviting me and all our listeners into the heart of the Palais des Nations here in Geneva. Thank you very much for your kind invitation, Michael. Uh, the Michael, uh, the McKay interview is the Geneva radio equivalent of Larry King Live and Ted Koppel's Nightline, and I feel privileged to be your guest on this show. In turn, I wish to welcome you back to the Palais des Nations that you know so well. However, I'm happy that with this visit, uh, we've been able to show you uh, the new building that was just completed uh, and is, uh, is now operational. I'm really grateful to you for making time to come and, uh, and have this uh, interview here. I, I wish to especially thank you for that embarrassingly <laughs> generous introduction. But it's true. In an effort to inject some <laughs> modesty, perhaps instead of a library, you could refer to me as a walking filing cabinet in a dark suit. Not true, David. That would bring uh, things kind of <laughs> down a notch. But with that kind of uh, an introduction, somebody like Bob Hope would say, well, I can't do better than this tonight, so goodbye. <laughs> yeah. well. I'm not going to let you go, David. <laughs> and listeners, he's right. This is a fabulous new building. I've just had a sort of conducted tour of it, and it's very impressive. But where to start, David? Let's begin with something current, Afghanistan. The Americans and their allies have all but gone. There's been conflict over centuries in that part of the world, as you know. The British fought and lost three wars in the 19th and early 20th century. You were a young man when the Soviets invaded in 1979 and remained for 10 years. The Americans are withdrawing after 20 years. Afghanistan is a country where many geopolitical interests converge and may thus remain a potential flashpoint. What's your long view of history, David, and ge geopolitics in that part of the world, and what do you think is the best that can be hoped for? Well, Michael, I cannot purport to be a, a specialist and expert on the country by any stretch of the imagination, but Afghanistan does seem to be current for almost 50 years now ever since Zahir Shah was overthrown in 1973 by his cousin, and was, uh, who was then overthrown by the communist Taraki in 78, who was in turn killed by another communist, Amin, in 1979. Then the Soviets invade the same year. They stay for 10 years, and, and on it goes. Uh, you know, in that sense, we're kind of uh, seeing a little bit of deja vu all over again, uh, a very unfortunate deja vu, I must add. What's the best thing that can be hoped for, you say? Well, the uh, UN assistance mission in Afghanistan just came out a couple of days ago with a dire prediction of the highest number of civilian casualties in the past mm. 10 years if no action is taken. So the best thing that can be hoped for, in my uh, view, is to stem the violence and preclude even more bloodletting that seems to be on the horizon. Now, I would say that the best uh, would be if arrangements could be found among all the forces in the country and agreed to that would minimize bloodshed and internal conflict. That, in turn, can only be achieved if all the uh, outside powers, big and medium, and mind you, as you mentioned, um, uh, there are only slightly fewer countries with interests in that region than in the Middle East, for example. That's true. That's true. If these outside powers avoid the temptation to use the current Afghan situation to obtain gains at the expense of other countries and to secure their position and interests irrespective of the costs of the locals, this is where a true unselfish spirit of multilateralism could be very helpful. Now, I think, and this is my view, we were seeing a first encouraging step in that direction right here in Geneva. Last June, 
with the Biden-Putin mini-summit. Now, while observers were drawing parallels with the Reagan-Gorbachev summit of 1995, for obvious reasons, both happened in Geneva, to me, that meeting of four and a half hours um, uh, seemed uh, more like the now almost uh, forgotten Bush-Gorbachev seven-hour summit in Helsinki in September 1990. That was Father Bush. Father Bush, Father yes, Bush, course, yeah. yeah. Now, despite public statements of the time uh, on both sides, including by yours truly on uh, U.S. network television, to the effect that, oh, it was just a good opportunity to consult on the whole range of, US Soviet, of the U.S.-Soviet agenda, everyone was guessing that the main issue was Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait and the USSR's position towards the prospect of military action against Kuwait. Uh, I'm sorry, against Iraq. Now, similarly, um, my personal position toward the, um, you know, the uh, or my analysis uh, tells me that uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and ensuring its dignified and orderly manner may well have been the main issue of this meeting in Geneva. But I'm also noticing that there has been no leak whatsoever to this effect from any side. So that puts a dent in my own thinking that um, that could have been uh, the main issue. But I'm also noticing, um, on the other hand, that there was a recent visit to Moscow by a very high-level Taliban delegation, mm. an organization banned in Russia, by the way, as a terrorist organization. Um, it, uh, it had extensive discussions uh, uh, and, uh, um, with, with Russian high officials and a meeting with senior Afghan representatives, some uh, out of power, but political figures. Now, this was barely uh, reported in the Western media and certainly not objected to from Western official or journalistic quarters. Um, so something seems to be afoot. If it is, and there is some joint leadership of the Americans and the Russians here, hopefully it may condition the other major players in the region and give us hope that uh, constructive multilateralism it prevails in the end and provides long absent peace and stability to this tormented land. So it wouldn't be too simplistic for me to say you're the David's cautiously optimistic. Is well, that too strong? Uh, I think cautiously, very cautiously. Very cautiously optimistic. And slightly hopeful. Okay, well, isn't we not need Not optimistic hope. because okay. um, I don't think we have grounds for optimism, okay. but there are things, if pursued, they could turn more towards optimism. Okay. We, we need, need a uh, lot of leadership okay. here. Okay, that's fair enough. Huh? Now let's t now take a look at a period of recent history where you were operating as a young diplomat and so saw up close the interaction of great powers and big men, Gorbachev of the USSR and Reagan of the USA, and what came later, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, 88 to 91, or should I say the process of internal disintegration within or simply collapse whatever descriptive word you want to use. But I've got a flurry of questions. I'll put them to you all very quickly, and then we just pick them off as, as, we go, as you wish. How important were those two men to the events of 88-91, or were they merely just front men to a much, much bigger forces? Are there other influential names that I should mention, like, for example, Pope John Paul II or, or Margaret Thatcher? I'll just throw them out as, as two examples. Did the rapidity 
of the USSR's unraveling surprise you, if you can recall? And with the benefit of hindsight, could the West have handled matters better after the event? And likewise, could the same observation be said about Russia? And lastly, do you see a similar miscalculation now that China run by its Communist Party, has become richer, namely that the West had hoped that China would become more liberal in the sense of consent of the government and equality before the law. In other words, more like the West, and is it a flaw or a conspicuous trait that Western democracies seem to have made such a mistake more than once? Or is my analysis just naive? Sorry for the long question, David. No, it's, uh, it's not naive, and the question is long, so you may have to rebound on some of the things and Come back to but some of the questions. Take me, take me through your answers. Yeah. Well, uh, to begin, uh, it's, a, it's a very valid uh, sort of uh, position of departure about political leaders. And, of course, there's the philosophical issue of political leaders versus historic forces, etc. But in this case, in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, political figures uh, of the magnitude that you mentioned played a very important role. I would name one woman and four men on the Western side uh, who played a decisive role with regard to Gorbachev and his policies. In order of appearance, Margaret Thatcher, the Reagan-Schultz duet, followed by Baker-Bush team, the Baker-Bush team. And let me briefly clarify what I mean. In 1944, uh, no, sorry, 1984, Gorbachev, then a, a, a newly minted uh, wine secretary uh, for agriculture of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Is that what he was? Mm -hmm. That's where he came from? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, because uh, before going to Moscow, he was heading a major region uh, that is a breast bread basket of, I of, see. Uh, of I Soviet Union Russia. Yeah. So he goes out uh, on his first uh, foreign trip, uh, sort of a coming out um, uh, uh, trip to the United Kingdom. And he's received by the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, which also was an indication. Now, and you remember, I'm sure, this episode very well, um, when the two couples, the uh, Thatchers and the Gorbachevs, stepped out onto the porch of 10 Downing Street. I was living Margaret, in England at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Margaret Thatcher announced to the entire world's media that was gathered there that, uh, almost quoting, I think, her, Mr. Gorbachev is a man that the West can do business mm. with. Mm. Now, by saying that, she raised the plank so high, uh, she, uh, I would say, uh, as good as seduced Gorbachev, <laughs> playing soft. to his uh, <laughs> vanities, yes. and playing to his wish to be seen as a member of the club, of, of civilized countries. So everything that Gorbachev did from then on or didn't do was, if not uh, uh, motivated by, but it was certainly informed by what would the West and his uh, colleagues, Western leaders, think about what he's doing. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, despite their big difference in, in uh, their character, uh, Yeltsin, who became president of Russia, um, struck the same stance very often. And I, I remember working for him for 11 months in 92. I would often overhear in, in the corridor in some you know, reception room waiting for a foreign leader to come when his staff was uh, running uh, this or that issue by him. He would inevitably r r ask or, or reply by asking, 
what will the West think of the actions of the president of Russia? He liked to refer to himself in the, the third, third person. person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, interestingly, the current predicament of uh, the collective West with regard to the current um, uh, occupant of the Kremlin is that President Putin doesn't seem to care about what the West thinks about him, or he makes a good uh, sort of impression of somebody who doesn't care. And uh, because he's already shunned from most of the you know, decent company, and his country is under myriad sanctions. But I digress. Let me move to uh, the is Reagan uh, Schultz uh, team. And particularly the rapidity of the collapse of the U.S. If that surprised the what, you, the, the, rapidity? The, the rapidity, the speed oh, with which the USSR <laughs> unraveled. You know, I just wonder. Michael, it not only surprised me; it surprised every uh, intelligence service yeah. of the entire world worth its its name. I mean, nobody expected uh, the country to come down and uh, with that speed. And I was working for the place. I mean, uh, I. I arrived in, uh, from Washington in uh, September. I started in October 1990 in uh, Gorbachev's uh, presidential advance office. And uh, at the uh, end of uh, a year and three months, the, the, the Soviet flag was run down the pole and the Russian uh, three-colored flag uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, raised. Mm -hmm. So, But uh, the Reagan-Schultz tandem was a very important um, uh, player. Um, although I don't subscribe to the, to the 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 issue that Reagan brought the country down no what what happened was Gorbachev came in in 1985 already intimidated by Reagan's Star Wars program uh, by the uh, spike in the Cold War that happened in 84 and the breaking off of the uh, uh, the uh, intermediate range nuclear forces discussions in Geneva uh, by the bleeding wound that Afghanistan continued to be uh, and uh, by the uh, economy, the Soviet economy that was uh, in dire straits yeah. already then. Yeah. So, but Reagan's Secretary of State, George Shultz, analyzed with his penetrating mind Gorbachev's problems and possibilities and provided perfect calibration for U.S. actions. So that was a very important um, uh, aspect. Then comes uh, the Bush 41 Baker team. And in 1989, when they come in, they take a quote-unquote time out for a few months. That unnerves Gorbachev further because he's, he's wondering whether this is a step back from the basically healthy level of relationship that uh, was established under Reagan. Uh, the, uh, the other aspect is that James Baker, a Secretary of State, fielded at the State Department a very, very strong team. I vividly remember, I was at the, uh, working at the em Soviet embassy in Washington at the time, uh, a senior aide to Foreign Minister Shevardnadze after their, first, uh, their team's first encounter with the Baker team. He was kind of having a little nervous uh, situation, saying, you expect us to go up against that and win, while giggling a little bit uh, nervously. So that was a very important uh, aspect. Now, could you touch on very quickly, though, the, um, the China, the, it, where the history repeats itself and the miscalculation now that China well, uh, is rich and successful, uh, relatively speaking? Yeah, well, it is r yeah. rich and, uh, yeah. and successful. Uh, you see, the U.S. predicament with China, while superficially similar to, to the, it's, it's, uh, the U.S. predicament for the U.S., the Chinese predicament for the U.S., while similar to the 
U.S.'s predicament with the Soviet Union is quite actually quite different because with the Soviet Union, the U.S. was dealing with a power on decline in decline, uh, whereas uh, uh, and the, uh, that power was looking for a U.S. lifeline. Whereas with the with the Chinese, the U.S. is working and has to work with a uh, power that is on the uh, ascent uh, and. Uh, increasingly uh, able to challenge Washington. Um, so managing that is very different from trying to land the lumbering Soviet bomber that was out of uh, fuel uh, at the time. Now, you know, you ask me about the long view. Uh, well, the long view, I mean, in general, you, you have the right approach to looking at the long view instead of, uh, you know, most journalists' approach to, so what happened, you know, one month ago? Which are the tactics as yeah. opposed to the strategy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you have to go back to the late 60s where, uh, when uh, the re deteriorating relationship between the Chinese and the Soviets uh, culminated in a brief but very uh, nasty shooting war on the border on the Usuri River in Siberia. So the U.S. saw uh, a chance to widen that uh, breach and uh, uh, Nixon, before going to China in 72, uh, the U.S. did not object to what we now call the One China Resolution, which was in, adopted in 1971, by which Taiwan, the Republic of China, was uh, unceremoniously ejected from its uh, the Chinese seat in the UN and the Chinese permanent uh, seat in the Security Council, and the People's Republic of China took over in 71. So in 72, Nixon went to Beijing, uh, or Peking at the time, bearing that gift in his back pocket, which uh, was uh, very, very much appreciated by the Chinese Communist Party and by its leader, Mao Zedong. Sure. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the, there's a slight irony. Incidentally, the, um, uh, Nixon's opening to Moscow came only in May 1972, three months after February when he went to China. So that was a clear signal to uh, Brezhnev uh, about the U.S. priorities. Now, you know, it's uh, just to finish on this, it's ironic that the uh, th this became known as the, the China card. It's ironic that with the demise of the Soviet Union, the China card became worthless overnight because there was no, no one to play it against. But it's, uh, it's becoming uh, part of the equation now again okay. in a different way. My, my guest today is Dr. David Chikvedza, Chef de Cabernet of the Director General of the United Nations Office at Geneva. And we're talking about his personal observations of statecraft, diplomacy, international affairs, and top people. David, I've got one eye on the clock, but there's some things I just want to ask you because of your personal experience and proximity. What did being the special assistant to the legendary, legendary in the sense that he seemed to have been around almost forever, the Soviet ambassador uh, Dobrynin, and also being chef, chief of protocol at the USSR embassy in Washington, D.C., what did that teach you about how great power politics really worked at the time and even works today? Uh, thank you, Michael. Let me, if, if you allow me, let me just uh, say a last thing about the U.S.-China relationship. I think the, uh, the, uh, both countries uh, need to find a mod modus vivendi because otherwise their deteriorating relationship uh, could bring the proverbial house down on everybody's head. Uh, so, uh, you know, the time, uh, this is uh, ripe, uh, the time is ripe for policy 
one towards the other. I agree, and, and I think you, they you can't go on with just sanctions and you know um, trying to thwart uh, this or that. You have to sit down and, and discuss uh, uh, how to live. Uh, everybody's interested in this. Yeah, yeah. Now let's just quickly talk about your personal experiences. Uh, yeah. at the embassy. Well, in uh, just to be precise, I. Uh, had the great honor of working under Ambassador de Brinen twice, once in 1980 when I was a, an intern and then when I went to Washington for the eight months there. But I wasn't technically his special assistant at the time. The special assistant slot became uh, open after he left because one of his special assistants left with him. And so I was put in that uh, position. So then I worked for four years with Ambassador Dubinin and uh, for six months afterwards before I left with Ambassador Besmetnik, who became foreign minister of the Soviet Union in the last months and was a victim of the August 91 putsch or, or uh, attempted overthrow of Gorbachev. So he was fired at, mm -hmm. on Yeltsin's orders. But without telling us any secrets, what can you give us a glimpse of uh, what it's like being up close to the action in it was, it was wonderful. Listen, <laughs> I, uh, when I was leaving Washington... But give us an example of wonderful. I, well, I'll tell you. Leaving Washington in September 1990, knowing only that I was going to work for the, uh, for the advance office of uh, the president of the Soviet Union, I said already, I went out on a limb saying I didn't know what other jobs would come, what other countries. I said that my job, my five years in Washington, was the most interesting, most rewarding and most memorable job I will ever have. <laughs> okay. And all, so many years later, and so many jobs later, my clairvoyancy has been vindicated. Give us one example of why. Look, I'll tell you why. Because uh, it was a, a heady time. It was, uh, I was there for the five years, basically, the first five years of Gorbachev. I arrived like uh, six months after he became president. So everything was opening up. Uh, there was curiosity. There was a, not a morbid curiosity, but a, an interested, uh, uh, kind curiosity towards each other. There were, uh, after the first couple of years of, of Reagan's, uh, you know, rhetoric, uh, uh, the relationship actually started getting better under Reagan. And that opened up all kinds of possibilities. Let me just tell you a simple example. The Soviet embassy on 16th Street in, in Washington, D.C., became the address of choice for all kinds of glittering uh, events of, of the Washington scene, like the, um, the Brunei Brit uh, uh, annual reception or the uh, annual... The, the Brunei, Brit? Brunei Brit is okay. the oldest Jewish organization. Oh, that see. tells you something. Okay, yes. The yes. Soviet embassy. Yes. The uh, Boy Scouts of America Gala. In the Soviet in embassy. In the Soviet embassy. <laughs> the Miss World reception. Seriously. Uh, which all these receptions brought everybody who was anybody in Washington. Mm -hmm. The Miss World reception even brought as a guest the then director of the CIA, Judge uh, William Webster. <laughs> uh, at the Soviet National Reception, the then director of the FBI, Judge Sessions, was there. And I have a photo with him and his wife. I mean, it was that kind of thing. But apart from the glitterati, what was important is that we, especially as, as protocol, uh, we were working together with the U.S. Uh, colleagues on uh, ministerial uh, meetings, over a dozen Schultz Shevardnadze, Baker Shevardnadze, including the trip out to Jackson, Wyoming, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, 
And we were working not as two adversaries. We were working as uh, two sides of the same team. That's good. That's if, the US, yeah. uh, if the U.S. Uh, team was uh, in, uh, you know, in trouble or had uh, screwed something up, we would pick up the slack. If we had the same problem, they would pick up. There was no scoring points against each other. This was really the best time to be in Washington. And is that recorded in the history of the time? Because I, I really I wasn't aware so. of that. It is. Good. That, so. That's I good. So. That's yeah. good. So, David, look, let, let's come back to home base as we draw our conversation to a close. The, the, the UN. I want to talk about the UN. I'm in the UN now with you. You're, uh, you imbibe the UN. It's your job and it's been your life for so long. I want to hear from you your views about introspection or effective self-analysis leading to action. I had a former UN Geneva Director General, you know him well, as my guest on the show a few years back, and he told me that all, he said to me, I remember, Michael, all incoming Secretaries General initiate a program of reform. But in your opinion, what reforming action is needed, and what is the best we can hope for nowadays? For example, reform of the UN Security Council as a bulwark against the avoidance of war and conflict, or at least the peaceful resolution of conflict, a change to the P5, the permanent, five permanent members. What would it take to alter its composition? Or put another way, would altering the P5 make it function any better? And the seeming current panic over climate change, can the UN play a calming role on the global debate, and perhaps it's already doing that. What is, David, the UN's role concerning such a big issue? And we can all imagine that there's always room for improvement, and the UN wouldn't claim to be perfect, but seen up close, where can the UN act effectively and do a better job for mankind? Tell me what your views is. Wow, well, if I had all I know, the I answers, I'd be impossible uh, question, in a different position. Give us a sense, because you're in a wonderful Look, I position. I can tell you something. See. Yes, Michael. Um, the, uh, the statement that my former boss made is absolutely correct. However, if we talk about UN reform, uh, we cannot uh, put into, you know, jumble into one uh, pile uh, the reform that the secretaries general uh, undertake with the reform, for example, of the Security Council or reform of the UN system. And that's because they're two quite different processes. It's they're just absolutely for those different who don't processes yeah. and different, uh, different entities can... Uh, 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 run the reform. The Secretary General, uh, any incoming Secretary General, starts a reform of the Secretariat. Mm. When, and the Secretariat is just one of the principal, five principal organs of the UN uh, uh, organization. However, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Security Council uh, the Secretary General has nothing to do with the reform of the Security Council. Probably ordinary people don't realize that, you see. No, but that's, <clears throat> that's why I always tell audiences like student audiences and others when uh, in, in speaking publicly, I say, whenever you see the acronym or hear the acronym UN or United Nations um, excelled here or messed up here, etc., you have to ask yourself, what is this person talking about? Which UN? Is he talking about the, uh, the UN Secretariat, me and uh, thousands of other staff members who are uh, hired by the Secretary General to help him perform the tasks that the member states have uh, given him? It's a very precise di differentiation. Very different. Yeah. Uh, or is, is, the, is the author talking about the uh, member states uh, or the General Assembly, which is one of another one of the principal organs. And the General Assembly is made up of 193 countries. 
Or is he talking about the Security Council, which is made up of 15 countries? Or is that author talking about the five member states who have veto power and are called the permanent members? Unless you identify or for yourself understand what that uh, piece is talking about, you won't be able to understand correctly and make the right uh, conclusions. Because if you say the United Nations uh, failed in Rwanda, well, uh, who failed? Was it, uh, actually Rwanda example is a very a good one because there, there was blame to go around to the Secretariat as well as to the member states. But it was the member states who were discussing in the Security Council for a week Okay, fine, in response to Butros Ghali's request to send 5,000 heavily armed troops, instead of saying, Secretary General, we'll give you 25,000 heavily armed troops, go get the job done, stop the killing, the, the, the genocide. Instead of that, for one week, the member states, especially permanent member states of the Council, were discussing, but what is the sunset clause? Who's going to provide the transport? Uh, this for one week where daily 30,000 people were being killed and thrown into Lake Kivu, okay? I used to be backstopping at the time the Great Lakes of, uh, of Africa for a colleague who was on leave, and I came home sick every day after reading the, the, the cables coming from the uh, UN uh, General Romero Dallaire, who was in charge of the forces. But you can see why the, the, the UN is a generic which ordinary people see on TV, yeah, here on radio, of course. and they just say, ah, the UN. I'll tell you something, uh, maybe last, uh, we don't have too much time, but uh, when I was moving to Geneva in 2003, I was coming to the uh, office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And just before departing from New York, there was a, uh, the elections to the old Commission on Human Rights uh, took place. And you know, we all know that it's done on a, on a rotating basis of uh, regional groups. It was Africa's turn. Uh, and in that uh, uh, Africa's uh, turn, it was Libya who was put forth by, and it was back then obviously Gaddafi's Libya. Yeah. And, and so the ambassador of Libya here, a lady, very urbane and sophisticated lady, was chair of the uh, president of the Commission on Human Rights. Well, on one of the network televisions, uh, television news uh, in, in New York still, before leaving, uh, I can almost quote what the uh, journalist said, the, the, the anchor said, if you didn't think the UN was bad enough, get a load of who the UN appointed to run the human rights machinery. Okay? I mean, it's a jumble of misperceptions and total ignorance of the whole system, but it made a, a good uh, headline and a good... Uh, so just one last question then. In, having said all of that, David, in closing, could you give me some sense that the UN understands that the, if, if their audience is the ordinary man in the street, the ordinary taxpayer, that they need to communicate these things more clearly so that people understand a bit more about what on earth is going on? Well, we're, we're trying to do that. Uh, I mean, the Secretary General himself is a powerhouse and he has uh, you know, very, very uh, competent people around him. Uh, but it's it's so ingrained. This acronym or this term, two-word term, United Nations, is so uh, you know ingrained in people's minds that they don't think about this. They don't think about the UN system. You living in Geneva, you know very well. You said so-called international yes. organizations. Well, they are international organizations of the UN system, but they're not run by the Secretary General. He right. cannot change anything there. Now. It is up to the member states to do that. 
because it is the same member states where they are, whether they are organized as 193 members of the General Assembly or 46 members of the Human Rights Council, it is the same member states. And one last thing, in Geneva, especially visible, uh, that we have here at least eight to 10 different foreign policies. Because you have the line minister for health coming to Geneva with his or her own uh, instructions or, her, uh, or, or agenda with the money to spend. Uh, you have the labor minister coming, doing the same thing. You have uh, the minister for refugees, whoever, because there are all these organizations. The money is dispersed from the same taxpayer, except in, in, yeah. uh, in every country. From the, uh, from the finance ministry, from the treasury, yes. when the money from the treasury, when the money goes to the line ministries, that's when it becomes different foreign policies. And no minister of health, uh, self-respecting minister of health or anything else is going to send his or her dossier to the foreign minister no, of his or of her country not. saying, could you take a look, <laughs> is this kosher? Of no, course they not, just no. come here and they spend their own money on their pet projects. David, thanks for this vigorous and fascinating conversation and for casting illuminating light, and really I mean that most sincerely, David, on all my questions. My guest today has been Dr. David Chikvedza, Chef de Cabinet of the Director General of the United Nations Office at Geneva. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you, and if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.